Hey guys, thanks for joining us for this 107th episode in Season 2 of Good Questions with Cameron Dole. Special guests on this episode include Washington Post columnist Stephen Petro. We'll talk about the new book, Stupid Things I Won't Do When I Get Old. We'll also visit with business leader and author Seth Radwell. We'll be talking about his new book, American Schism, How the Two Enlightenments Hold the Secret to Healing Our Nation. We'll also visit with the one and only Ice Cube. Big Three Season 4 is going to premiere on Saturday on CBS. And we'll also visit with new artist Mike Minio. Got a brand new single, What Love Is. We'll also talk about what 2021 has in store. Of course, if you would, please take the time to subscribe, comment, leave some feedback, check out the shop, and share with your friends. Now, if anyone has some pull over the corporate giants who sell us our hot dogs and buns, it's Heinz Ketchup. And now they're using that clout for good, because this is something everyone agrees on. Heinz Canada just launched a petition on change.org to force companies to sell hot dogs and buns in equal amounts. Now, hot dogs tend to come in 10 packs and buns usually come in eight packs and they think 10 should be the new standard for both. Now, for what it's worth, there is a reason behind the mismatch. Hot dog companies started selling them in 10 packs in the 1940s just because it's a round number. But bun companies sell eight packs because the standard pan they've always baked them in fits four buns per row. Now these days, they also have pans that fit five. So there's no good reason that can't be the new modern standard. Well, you can sign the petition by going to change.org and searching for the Heinz Hot Dog Pact. As of the latest numbers, it was at 15,000 signatures. Washington Post columnist Stephen Petro got a new book to talk about stupid things I won't do when I get old. Looking forward to delving into that. And uh, first off, Stephen, thank you so much for your time, sir. My pleasure, Cameron. Great to join you. Now, when did you decide that this book was something that you had to put out? Was it was it the first time you heard your dad or mom's voice in your ear as you said something? <laughs> no, it was when they were in their <laughs> 70s. And I started keeping a list of things that I was not going to do that they were doing that I thought was stupid. And you know, things like I'm going to turn in the keys when I can't drive or I start hitting things, you know, talking incessantly about my health, um, things, things like that. And it became a it became a column in The New York Times. And then people all over the country started sending me their list. And we were all trying to sort of practice how we can do better as we get older. And so this book is kind of a compilation of all of the ideas that, um, that I had that I noticed in my reporting. And um, I think it will help us live better and even live longer, if I can believe the science. What were maybe some of the biggest questions or, or comments that folks had uh, regarding stupid things that they wanted to make sure that they didn't do? What type of things are we talking about here? Well, we're talking about um, some some less serious things like I won't color my hair, especially <laughs> for guys who get older, because they often wind up looking desperate. Um, to I won't hoard the butter packs and the little jelly packets <laughs> that come from fast food restaurants. And that's part of like a larger theme of trying to get rid of things rather than adding things to um, what we have in our houses. And then, you know, and then some of the more serious ones, you know, I won't drive when I become a threat. You know, that takes a certain amount of um, awareness. That's, that's really hard. And, 
we had a re- we had an intervention with my mom that completely failed, and we had to take away her driver's license. So that was that was painful. Um, and also, one I won't limit myself only to friends my age. Mm. It's really healthy for us to expand who we're friends with, especially by generations. New perspectives, new ways of thinking, and um, often a lot of IT help, which um, is not a bad thing. And Stephen, I think one of the things, obviously, generationally that we that we battle is the way things were before and uh, not being able to evolve. And I think that's something that the newer generations are are wanting to adapt and evolve to meet those needs, right? Well, you know, it's it's interesting. So the the, the pace of change has been enormous you know, in, in my lifetime, and I'm going to be 64 next week, you know, just from, from the internet on down. But, you know, I talk about a friend of mine in the book who died a couple of years ago at the age of 100, and she was born in 1920, I believe. Wow. Television came, radio came, uh, phones came, you know, we've all had to continue to adapt. And so that's a really important aspect of getting older, finding the way to evolve and adapt especially when it comes to technology, but in so many other ways. Who's the audience that you're, that you're speaking to in the book? And what is some of the feedback that you've been able to get from them? So the audience is really anyone who is north of 50 and sort of dealing with um, some of these issues themselves, as well as their kids and their grandkids, because this is a great book for generations to use to talk mm. about difficult topics, sometimes like illness and disability, even the death and dying issues. I mean, I try to bring humor to many of these topics, we're kind of afraid that we're really afraid to talk about some of them. So, um, so it's 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 got a really wide audience, and people have been um, loving it. And uh, you know, as someone who often writes serious for the Washington Post, it's been nice to see my funny voice recognized as funny by um, by many people. So <laughs> um, encouraging. Maybe I will. Maybe I will um, take a you know a new career as a stand-up. I might be going too far, though, Cameron. <laughs> <laughs> now, now, Stephen, for you, is it easier to write with a, with a humorous twinge to it, or was that maybe a little bit more difficult because you're wanting to edit to make sure that you're funny? Well, I, I've read so many of the articles and studies and books about aging, and they're frightening and they're dull. And I thought, well, what can I do that's going to be different and that's going to help people get involved in the conversations? And so... Uh, so that's why I turn to humor, and um, and it seems to be you know it seems to be very disarming. You know, I tell um I tell the story of my parents wanting to buy um, burial plots, and you know that's kind of a heavy topic. But mm-hmm. my mom just said, you know, all I want is a gin and tonic, and I'll say yes to anything. And then <laughs> my dad, who was a journalist, also he's roaming the cemetery and he finds the grave marker of a of a famous journalist, and he goes, "This is a good neighborhood. I'd say yes to." <laughs> but, so I, I talk about, you know, how we can sort of break down some of these um, hard talk about topics and um, bless their hearts. They're um, they're in that cemetery now. There you go. And again, the, the book, Stupid Things I Won't Do When I Get Old. Stephen, I want to make sure and, and let our listeners know where to find not only more information about the book, but uh, your other writing and upcoming projects as well. Well, I have a website and it is stephenpetro.com. That's Stephen with a V and Petro has a W. So I'm just Google me and the book is available um, wherever fine books are sold. Well, Stephen, it has been a privilege to have the chance to visit with you. Looking forward to spending some more time with the book myself and hope you have a great weekend, brother. You too. Thanks so much, Cameron. Take care. 
Do want to say thanks to our sponsor for today's podcast, Smiley's Breezy Vapes, located at 313 Falcon Road in Altus, Oklahoma. They've got red basket specials going on always, plus the latest and newest of hardware. Plus, they've got the largest selection of disposable flavors in Southwest Oklahoma. For more information or any questions, give them a call or send a text at 580-471-VAPE. That's 580-471-8273. Now, there's a lot of insanity to contend with when you're driving, and most of that is brought on us by other humans. You know, bad drivers, distracted drivers, aggressive drivers, angry drivers, and rude drivers. Well, Bankrate.com ranked all 50 states by how rude their drivers are. They did it by analyzing the results of multiple previous studies, which compiled data on both bad driving and on rude behavior in general. Now, in the end, they say the state with the rudest drivers is California. Which isn't shocking, but where are those chill West Coast vibes we always hear about? Now, Nevada's drivers are the second rudest, followed by those behind the wheel in Florida, Oregon, New Mexico, Tennessee, Washington, Arizona, Alaska, and Maryland. Now, the state with the least rude drivers is Vermont. The folks at the wheel in Nebraska are the second coolest, followed by Maine, Minnesota, Delaware, North Carolina, New Hampshire, Utah, Montana, and Kansas. And since you're probably wondering, New York ranked 29th. Excited to talk Big 3 basketball, the new season getting underway tomorrow, and who else to have on but Ice Cube himself. And first off, Cube, thanks for your time. Oh, man, thanks for having me. Tell us uh, the the idea behind Big 3 uh, going into Season 4 now, evolving, and, and especially after what we've been through this last 18 months. Cube, how excited are you to be in front of the fans with the games tomorrow? I oh, mean, very excited. Um, it's been a rough year and a half, uh, but everybody's, you know, ready to go. It's like when the slingshot, you're ready to, to just spring and do our thing. And so um, it's, it's just great, you know, seeing guys in shape uh, and ready to, to fight for a championship. We got we got a lot of cool incentives for them to, to you know, battle. They're hardest, you know, if you get, you get, uh, you win, you get paid more than if you lose. So uh, guys are really going to be going at it this year. So I can't wait to see it tomorrow. Cube, with having the time off over this last year and a half and having to kind of look internally a little bit, did that re-incite the vigor for the new season and uh, the excitement to to see the fans have that opportunity again? Yeah, you know, when you do something like this and, you know, it's not it's not an easy venture. We have right. a lot of great people you know, working very hard to bring this league together. So. Um, we've been working behind the scenes, you know, for so long. It's it's really time to get back in front of the fans, get the games on. You know, you can only prepare so much. It's it's time to play. And new players around this year. Are there any new players that really are of particular interest to you? Maybe surprised you in the in the tryout sessions? 
Well, I can't wait to see what uh, Nick Young do, Swaggy P, uh, Leonardo Barbosa, the Brazilian Blur, uh, <laughs> Jody Meek. Um Isaiah Austin, you know, is a guy who was poised to be a first-round pick mm-hmm. in the NBA, and um, he had an eye issue um, that that made him ineligible to play that um, was misdiagnosed. So he, uh, you know, he's been playing all around the world and he became my number one pick. Uh, so to see him play tomorrow on CBS with a team called the Enemies uh, is going to be pretty special. I know he's been waiting to, to show the American audience what he really can do. Maybe he'll make it back into the NBA. You never know. That's cool. Now, uh, for you, Cube, to see the level of play grow and uh, going into season four, I mean, how high do you set the bar of expectations going into the new season? Well, you know, I haven't set the bar. Joe Johnson set the (laughs) bar. You know, he has, he's the MVP of the league. (laughs) He's the MVP. He's the champion. His team triplets, uh, you know, went seven and one. So they only lost one game last year and, and won the championship. So he set the bar. Everybody else got to go chase it because in our league, when you win the championship, you got to come back with the same exact players to see if you can defend it. So, you know, they're chasing him and, and the triplets. Now, as the season gets underway, obviously changing things up, uh, playing in two different arenas this year, do you, do you see what what are the challenges that you see coming into the new season? Um, you know, we're fighting through the NBA Finals. I mean, they're, they're only on game two. Um, so, you know, just making sure that, you know, people know that there's, a, there's more basketball to see. There's more athletes to, to cheer on and that everything doesn't end when the NBA stops. Um, also, you know, retaining sponsors through a pandemic um, and trying to add new sponsors after you've been off for a year um, is, is all challenging. Uh, so we, you know, we're hoping to have big viewership tomorrow on CBS. Uh, and, you know, we, we hope people follow the league all summer. That's right. And again, uh, tomorrow, 1230, uh, 1130 local time, Orleans Arena, Las Vegas, Nevada. And uh, again, the game also on CBS. And Cube, I always want to make sure and, and let our listeners know not only where they can find more info about uh, about the, the season, also everything you got going social media-wise, uh, website as well. Yeah, go to uh, big3.com. Or you can get the Big Three app. Um, you can follow us on, you know, Instagram, Twitter, or you can follow me at Ice Cube on Twitter and at Ice Cube on Instagram. Um, yeah, just keep checking us out. You know, our games that's not on CBS will be on Triller. Mm-hmm. We have a deal with the Big Three on Triller, so you can see our games for free there if you get the app. Uh, so after the CBS games go off, you can still see more big three. Cool. There you go. Well, uh, Ice Cube, it has truly been a privilege to visit with you. Have a great weekend and looking forward to the new season, brother. Take it easy. 
do want to say thanks to our sponsor for today's podcast, Smiley's Breezy Vapes, located at 313 Falcon Road in Altus, Oklahoma. They've got red basket specials going on always, plus the latest and newest of hardware. Plus, they've got the largest selection of disposable flavors in Southwest Oklahoma. For more information or any questions, give them a call or send a text at 580-471-VAPE. That's 580-471-8273. If I asked you how many secrets you keep from your family and friends, you'd probably either struggle to come up with one or tell me to make myself comfortable while you went through the process of counting them all. According to a new study, the average person keeps two secrets from loved ones, which seems low because you know there are people out there who keep everything under wraps. The person people are most likely to keep a secret from is their mother, and one in six won't even tell their deepest secret to a closest friend. Now sadly, the most common secret people keep involves their mental health, with the second most common being an embarrassing incident. Now the rest of the top 10 are internet history, snack habits, hygiene habits, how many partners you've had, credit card statements, that you faked an illness to get out of something, an affair, and one night stands. Others in the top 25 include smoking, drug and alcohol habits, phobias, celebrity crushes, political opinions, and being a supporter of a football team your friends don't like. Our next guest got a new book to talk about, and uh, we we actually had this book a little previous to today, but uh, but due to, uh, well, health issues, uh, we we, we were unable to get this one in earlier this week to go along with 4th of July, though. Wanted to talk about this book. This one just jumped out at me. It's called American Schism, How the Two Enlightenments Hold the Secret to Healing Our Nation. We've got Seth David Radwell with us today. And uh, first off, Seth, I appreciate you taking some time to be on the show. It's actually a pleasure to be here. And thank you so much for doing this. Now, Seth, I, I know w- before we came on the air, you mentioned this was like a two and a half year project uh, writing this book. Well, what was the initial inspiration for you to uh, to even delve into the project? Sure. Well, it's it's actually quite interesting in the sense that my whole career has been in business. I'm a business leader with expertise in marketing, and I've led many consumer products companies. Most recently, I was CEO of Proactive, the acne brand that many many of your listeners might be familiar with. But uh, my, I do have roots in public policy, and over the past couple of years, I, I watched as our political discourse in the nation collapsed. And it was very distressing to me. Not so much, I've always enjoyed different points of view politically, in fact, my network uh, of, of professional colleagues and friends are always have always been mixed, those on the right, on the left, and I've always enjoyed discussing different ideas with them. But what distressed me was that, first of all, the rational aspect of our discourse was crowded out, has been crowded out by rancor and acrimony and anger. And I think that that was upsetting to me. But even more so, Cameron, was the apparent disappearance of objective truth it seemed like we were living in a world all of a sudden where everyone could have their own truth. And from my research, um, I know that that's not possible in a democracy. So to answer your question, I went on this journey, this investigative journey to understand where the, the, 
the, the roots of our division come from. I knew this couldn't all be, it's not all recent, it's been building over years, but I also knew that in our history as a country, we've had other periods when we've had great uh, disagreement and rancor. So the, the, the goal was to do an investigative tracing of our divisions. And that's what American Schism is all about. And you talk about our divisions and we've had divisions. We've had disagreements before. What makes this one seem so much worse than anything? Is it a generational thing? Is it just because of history wise, we just don't remember? Well, right. So, so part of what I, I, I tell uh, listeners is that, you know, you've often, he- first of all, this is not unprecedented. We've had many periods of rancor and division and anger in our country. Of course, the Civil War is one, but we have had many others. So I tell um, listeners and readers that in order to really understand uh, what's going on today, you have to break out of two different bubbles, if you will. One of them we talk a lot about on media, which is our partisan bubble. You know, it's often said that many people get their news and information from only one or two sources, and it's important to have a diversity of opinion. That's why shows like yours are so important, Cameron, to have a discussion about issues. So part of one of the challenges is to break out of our partisan bubble. But what's less talked about, and I think important, is to, t- to break out of our time bubble. Because like you said, we're all believing that this is, the, this, this is the worst it's ever been. We don't have a sense of perspective historically. So by going back in time, we can actually see uh, similar episodes, similar times when we've had divisions like this and what they were based on. So I think going back in time is the antidote. And your listeners, if they're curious about, well, are are these differences today? Is that this all new? Where did it come from? Did it start with Trump? Was it before then? If they read American Schism, they'll get a sense of that. And I think that's really important. You know, a lot of folks, a lot of folks blame division on, on Trump, but I think what I was what from what I was reading also in this is that this, this was something that was building and Trump just came in. His timing was just right. Correct. He was very Trump is very talented at tapping into what was an, a growing, a festering rage, if you will, that had been building across amongst the many Americans for a long time. And and it, and what I want to point out, Cameron, is that this the anger was, is real. I mean, it's based on real suffering that many Americans have been experiencing as a result of our last kind of 50 years of uh, economic policy of our globalist capitalist, you know, uh, policy system, which has left many Americans behind. I've been unfair to many Americans. Let me say it like that, because it's it's been tilted towards certain types of people, the wealthy, et cetera, which we can go into. So I do think that this rage has been building. And interestingly, Trump, as you said, didn't create it. In fact, both administrations, Democrat and Republican of the last 50 years, have shown a disdain for for working class Americans uh, from from, uh, Clinton and Reagan right up through um, Obama. and, and, And Trump understood that and he tapped into it, which is why so many Americans uh, resonated. Let me let me put it that way with the messages right. he was putting across. So it's been building for a long time. Now, where do you think the big, the closest correlation to where we're at now historically? Uh, where where is the the mirror of that, if you will? So, okay, so that's I love that question because it's true that, for example, in the book I talk about during the founding era there was a huge division between 
two different schools of enlightenment thinking that that was what founded our nation. So our nation was really founded based on principles of this period of time called the enlightenment, which is very important. I'm going to come back to why. But basically, it was an era when uh, we realized that reason and rational thinking and empirical observation were really important for our for our prosperity. And so, but during that time, there were two, uh, uh, it was two schools of thought, the radical enlighteners and the moderates. And the book traces that back. And so I would say to answer your question, one time when we were very div divided was right after the forming of the country up until the constitution was written and the early years when there was a major push and fight between what were the federalists, which were kind of the moderates and the democratic republicans, which were more the, the radicals. And the book describes this in more detail. But what I was saying is the reason why the Enlightenment is so important, and it comes back to why today is a little bit different, is that if you take a little bit of a longer perspective, again, which the book does, you realize, Cameron, that over, over 200 years, uh, life expectancy has gone from 30 years to over 70 years, right? So 200 years ago, one in five children didn't survive till age five. Today, almost all do. My, my point being is that overall, the enlightenment and the, the embrace of truth and science has done pretty well for us. I mean, we, in the long scheme, we've succeeded pretty well. Now, what's happened more recently in the last 50 years, um, many Americans have been, have been left behind by our policies. So there is a, this truth that overall, we've done well over the long, of the long 200 year range. Over the last 20, 30 years, it's been more difficult. And here's what I think what the problem is, is then back then, and in many other instances, when we've had divisions, our dialogue, our political debate has always been a mix of rational ideas, facts, and emotions. It's always a blend. Right. In recent years, and, and this I think is a little bit of cause of, of like digital me social media, or I'm not sure, a couple of factors, and I look at this in the book, it seems that our rational debate has become crowded out by, by this, uh, almost this um, uh, amygdala driven, like it's impulse driven anger and rage, like what you, the, rat, the, the yelling you hear on Twitter. So the, the analogy I use is like, we all know that there's these primitive feelings that we get, which feel good to be part of an in-group and it feels great to bash the out-group. And we all know this because we all, if, if any of us have ever been in a sports arena, we know how it feels to root for a team, that's great. And it's wonderful to have the, that, that play out because it's part of our, our, bio, our chemistry, our biology, but it's not the right way to make public policy. <laughs> so we can't have a, a, a debate that's based on screaming. Now, what my research shows in the book is that 70% of Americans, more than 70%, are part of what I call a frustrated majority, meaning they, they don't like the extreme lefts or, or rights screaming at each other. They realize that you know, we have more in common than not. We've got to embrace what brings us together and move forward for solutions. And that includes what's become kind of a dirty world word today, which is compromise. We, we have to compromise on some things. And, and it, the problem is with the, the nature of social media and sometimes, uh, you know, when you, when you see cable news shows, they tend to portray the other side as a caricature, as an enemy. And that, I think that's very dangerous for democracy. We're not enemies. You know, 87 million people voted for Biden, 81 million people voted for Trump. That's a lot of people on both sides. And they, you know, the, the, most of those are very, uh, are good, hardworking Americans. So we have to stop demonizing each other because we disagree. We can find solutions to our problems. We've always managed because of, again, this enlightenment inheritance of embracing facts and science, 
we've always managed to solve problems and we can solve climate change. We can solve COVID-19 if we work together on solutions. And so I guess on one hand, it seems very depressing when you look at the, the dialogue today, but <laughs> right, it's, you, you watch what goes on, it's like, oh my God. But when I look at the data, I see cause for hope. I mean, what, what, the one danger is that I don't think we should take our democracy for granted. It, it's hard work, yeah. but it's, hard, it's not the easiest system. But Cameron, have you noticed that in the world overall, there's a movement towards autocracies like Putin and, and China and what's happening in Hungary? There, there seems to be a, uh, a feeling of giving up on self-democracy, uh, self-rule for allowing strong strong men, frankly, to, to rule. And that that has the potential, in my view, to be dangerous. So I, the, one of the things I do in the book is I, I do all this historical analysis, but then I come back and I, I try to wrap up some of the issues we face today in more fundamental uh, root, root cause questions. So something like, you know, do we believe in a bottom-up form of government of the people? Because that's a, it's a hard thing to do, but it has certain, it has real benefits long-term. Because I think to some degree, a new gen, next generation, Gen, gen uh, Z and beyond, they take some, to some degree our democracy for granted. What, what is it? What's it going to take for the sides to come together? That's, that's my question. And, and what's it going to take for the media to actually give unbiased coverage as well? <laughs> well, the, un, the unbiased coverage is a really hard question because part of the problem there is our, our incentive systems in media, especially digital media incentivize whoever shouts the loudest. So I think we have to really look at our incentive system. And I have some ideas on this, which I'll come back to. But the real answer to your question is it's shown, my research shows that when people actually come together and spend time in person, and for all the benefits of the, of the internet, it's a wonderful thing. It's, if it stops people from actually spending physical time but talking and being with each other and seeing, you know, you take a, a New York City person and put him in, in, in on a farm in, in Iowa. You need, you know, we, we need to understand that we're all fundamentally, we all want a good education for our kids. We, I mean, we all want a lot of the same things. So if you go back to the roots, yes, we have different lifestyles and there's differences, but we've always had more in, in, that brought us together than not. And I still believe that's true. So the answer to your question is, I think, we have to get a little bit away from, from tweeting. And I'm sorry to my, digit, my uh, technology friends who love to tweet and to, we have to get a little bit away from tweeting and go outside and talk to someone. And, but you know, my book, one of the, the ideas that, I, that made me de develop and devote so much time to this was I believe in addition to top-down leadership, we need some bottom-up initiative. So I, like, for example, I invite friends of mine, professionals, both very conservative and some liberal and in the middle, to read American Schism and discuss it. And, and like, let, let's talk to people who we don't agree with, but we can talk to each other respectfully without shouting and denigrating the other person. Is that so hard to do? I mean, what happened? Maybe it's stuff that we learned when we were a kid in kindergarten, but, but people have the right to different points of view. And if people you know, are, are disdainful, what I try to do when I'm, whenever I'm having a conversation with someone who has a different point of view, if they start to attack personally, I say, you know what, let's stop. Let's, let's go back to the, what's the issue at hand? I, I can use an example. You know, one of the most um, difficult issues today that we face is immigration. Mm -hmm. And we, over the last couple of years, we've heard people talk about, you know, uh, build walls and cages and, and, you know, open borders. And the truth is, it's so funny, Cameron, because 
uh, not that long ago, like six, seven years ago, the Gang of Eight, which is a group of bipartisan senators on the Hill, had a solution that was very detailed for immigration reform. And the interesting part is it, of course, it had compromises. So nobody was completely happy. The, ex the, the extreme left was unhappy because it had real rules and almost like quotas for how we were gonna manage immigration. The right was unhappy because it had a path for citizenship for dreamers. Eventually they would, the people who were brought here. So it had things that both sides didn't love. But what, why I bring that up is because it was an extremely detailed proposal that had bipartisan support and that would have solved a lot of the problems that we have and at least put structure around it. So we had rules. Here we are eight years later and we're nowhere. And we, it's, we're further divided than we were. These are real problems we have to solve. So it's, to me, immigration is a good example of what's happened. And, and you know, I think Trump hasn't helped this with his rhetoric and right. is that we, each side makes the other side sound like a crazy person. In other words, <laughs> nobody really wants open borders where anyone could come in. We would be invaded. And no one, and over the course of our history, at times we've needed immigration for, for, for workers, for technology. There are certain benefits of immigration. We've, we've been a country of immigrants. So when you look at the facts, there's a way to manage this that's, that's rational. Anyway, I, I, I don't want to go on and on about immigration, but I think it's one example. And immigration is, is one of those touchy points that, uh, that we're dealing with now, obviously right. race, elections uh yes. but but the, but the thing is we can't really be that far apart can we we're not that's the, that's what the frustrated majority these 72 or 76 percent of americans feel and they they get they feel like this knee-jerk reaction to get pulled into the rage of what, what someone on cable news is saying but if you really talk to them one-on-one -on -one, they don't believe that so so that's what i mean i don't think we're that far apart I, like for example if you look at voting you know, the, the data show that there actually is not a lot of fraud in voting. If, if we believe all citizens should have the right to vote, we need we need good voting laws that allow for, sure, maybe identification, but also not making it harder to vote. And so there's a compromise there, too. I will say, you know, well, I, I fault both sides of, of the extremes on this. There is a part of the, the 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 Republican Party now that seems to be rejecting truth. Like we've counted the ballots in Arizona 19 times. So it looks like that there was no major problem with the with the voting. And yet they're 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 doing it again. See, that, that's what I mean about you have to embrace facts. If you if you reject truth and just believe your own truth, which is one of the reasons why I, I think to, to a large degree what, what they call the big lie is very dangerous. Because I think that the facts show that, that again, it was a very, it wasn't that close an election. It was around 87 million to 81 million or something. And the popular vote was clearly won. And the, and the electoral process was won by Biden. And we, yet we've been spending almost a year, not quite a year, six months debating this when we could be moving on. And uh, at a time when we need to move and we yes. need to, to, we need momentum right now, probably more than any time, right? Yes, correct. Correct. I mean, you know, what I would say is one of the, the, the things that I found in American schism is that the, one of the most important aspects of having an, and one of the beauties of a democracy is that you need an educated populace. So one of the one of the goals and needs is in a system like ours is to educate the people. And education is a really important thing. We, we used to be very good at it. And while we're debating who won the election, China and other countries are continuing to educate their kids. 
<laughs> and getting ahead. And that's that bothers me because I think, you know, we can all agree that we want our kids to have a good education and, and learn and have a successful um, life, whatever they choose to pursue. And that's a really important thing we could be investing more on. And with this last year, I mean, what do you think in the last year, year and a half due to COVID being remote and everything, what do you think that we should have learned? And do you think we uh, fell short? I think um, a couple of things. I think that that's a very good question. I think we realized that many of the quote unquote elites who were putting their head in the sand and saying all this problem in the country and, you know, people in the coast and, and technical uh, and, and wealthy people realized how dependent they are on what our first line servers, people who make the food and take care of them. Look, look how the medical profession has working so hard and sacrificing so much for all of us. So we're all, I mean, in some ways, I'm hopeful that one of the lessons is, you know, we're all really important in our economy and in our society. All people who, who, who you know, I was very fortunate. I spent a lot of this time writing my book and people brought me food and I could order in. And, you know, so I'm, I'm one of those ones who is really very blessed and fortunate about all the wonderful frontline workers who helped us. So one thing I hope is that it brings us together on that level. But the second thing that I hope it does, I think people are starting to realize and wake up that this notion of what I call in, in the book, this postmodernism that we can all have our own truths. That's, there are facts and we have to re-embrace facts and a rational dialogue. We, we got to stop. We have to reject this um, you know, football arena shouting and demonizing the other team as if it's a sports game. And, and come back to uh, rational points of view and reason. And I'm hopeful, my, in, in some ways, American schism, beside being a great look into history, it's also a call to arms to fight unreason with reason and, and not, not use the same way we've been discussing things over the last year, two, three years, and maybe adapt our political dialogue and rehabilitate it. And uh, now, Seth, if folks want to to find more info uh, about the book, uh, everything you've got going on as well, wanted to make sure and let our listeners know where the best place to get one. Well, they can they can buy American Schism on in anywhere books are sold. So on the online stores, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, et cetera, in, in physical bookstores should have them. Uh, but I would say that if they want more information on the book itself, they can also go to the, uh, there's a site for the book, AmericanSchismBook.com. So it's American and then schism is S-C-H-I-S-M, not so easy, S-C-H-I-S-M book.com. And there they can also email me or ask questions. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm happy to, uh, I love talking to readers and listeners because again, the part of the book's goal is to create a better dialogue, a better discourse among, amongst each other, even if we disagree. It's, We've had great success in our country based on rational debate, and we've always had different points of view. So that that's not new. But if we reject truth altogether, then our democracy is doomed. So I, I, I think we better we better wake up and smell the coffee that we've got to re-embrace uh, differences in a more constructive manner. Seth, it has been great to visit with you, sir. I appreciate you taking some time to be on the show, and uh, hopefully we can revisit this. I would love to. And I would say that, you know, what I mentioned before is quite true. Your show, Cameron, this type of discussion of a little more in depth than a tweet is really the solution to some of these problems. So thank you so much for doing this. 
Do want to say thanks to our sponsor for today's podcast, Smiley's Breezy Vapes, located at 313 Falcon Road in Altus, Oklahoma. They've got red basket specials going on always, plus the latest and newest of hardware. Plus, they've got the largest selection of disposable flavors in Southwest Oklahoma. For more information or any questions, give them a call or send a text at 580-471-VAPE. That's 580-471-8273. This Saturday is National Kitten Day, when we're encouraged to donate, foster, or adopt. So here's a question. Once you've got that cat, is it okay to take it out and walk it on a leash? Well, anyone who does it will tell you to buy a harness, not just a collar. And don't force your cat to do it if they don't want to. Some cats, not into it. But assuming they do like it, here's the real question. Is it socially acceptable to walk your cat? Now, someone asked over 10,000 Americans, and most people say, yes, 58% of us are fine with it. Now, that includes 26% who somewhat approve and 32% who strongly approve. Another 27% don't have an opinion or just don't care. And only 15% said they don't think it's okay. Now, men are slightly more likely to disapprove 17% of men against 13% of women. Another survey for Kitten Day asked how old a cat can be and still be called a kitten. And one in five people said a year old. Believe it or not, experts agree, at least when it comes to food. They should get kitten food for the first 12 months. Our final guest on the podcast today, new artist, uh, well, new to me, I should say, Mike Minio on the line with us. And uh, first off, Mike, I appreciate you taking the time to be on the show. Yeah, thank you for having me, man. Mike, first off, tell tell our listeners just a, a little background on on Mike Minio. Where did where did the music first come into your life? Well, music first came into my life. Um, I would say, I mean, when I was a toddler, I just kind of always just belted out singing um, naturally, and uh, but songwriting started more like when I was about twelve. There was a there was just a uh, a big argument at the house, and and, and my uh, older brother and my dad actually got into like a, a big fight. And I I just grabbed a guitar and went in my room and just started writing a song about it. And uh, kind of I, I played it for my mom, and then she started to cry. <laughs> and I was like, all right, well she like you know she she feels like the intensity of the song. And then after that, I was just I was just hooked as a songwriter, and I would. I consider myself, if anything, I would just say a songwriter because, you know, when it, when when you can convey a message uh, with with the emotion of a melody to it and, and and you know melodical accompaniment, it just it really just puts everything in a complete package to uh, affect somebody in the way that you were affected. So from from the age of twelve, I, I I'd say I found a specialness to songwriting. For you, what's the sticking point? What's the hardest part of the right process? Ooh, that's a good question. Uh, the hardest part of the of the of of the writing process, I would say, is probably remaining genuine and letting 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 it flow, allowing yourself. It's so weird because it's. 
I feel the process of, of, of songwriting is so close to being human that it's, it's like if you're experiencing letting pe- things affect you and, and, and being observant of how it makes you feel or, or the world around you, um, it, it allows, uh, you know, the flow of creativity and of, of just genuineness to come through you. And it, I'd say it's, it's, it's an everyday challenge to, to, to be authentic and open with your perceptions and feelings uh, as they come in. So that kind of is the challenge. And I, I notice a lot of the times when I'm, when I, when I'm in a creative block, I would say it, it's more because I feel like I'm a little stagnant in my life. Um, and it's just, it's just a, a matter of, you know, keeping yourself open. So you, you talked about stagnation in life. Did that mean this last year? Was that, did that make it more challenging writing this last year? Uh, with, with, uh, you mean with COVID? Like yeah, with COVID and having to be things. separate from everything. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I, yeah, I would, I would say that. And I kind of had to, I kind of had to step up and do different things for a grind because obviously, you know, there were no live shows or anything like that. Um, and I had to, uh, I, I spent almost all of 2020 on the road traveling. So it, though it was not stagnant, it was still, <laughs> I, I like didn't have much time to write, but I, I, I did, I was able to uh, sneak in a few, but yeah. Now the, the new single, what love is this one instantly, the first time I heard it, it caught me and I'm, and I'm sure you you get that response from other people. And what, uh, to tell us the evolution of, of Mike Minio from the, the earlier works to what love is that was that we've got today. Um, well, I would, I, I would say the, er, the earlier works were definitely, uh, more all over the place and sort of, uh, experimentation with different uh, varieties of, of, of genres and things like that and things that inspired me. I mean, uh, growing up in South Florida, you know, there's, there's just, it's a melting pot of culture, which the musical genres reflect that as well. And I would say just evolving more to like a unified sound and, uh, you know, more, what should I say? Uh, concise, put together mm-hmm. instead of having like a, a, a theatrical presentation that goes through three different genres in one song, you know, <laughs> you know, that's kind of a, it's kind of like just a simplification of, of, you know, fo- honing in on, on, on the hooks, you know, the parts that you really like. And then also just having, you know, the, the, the verses as the creative and, and, and uh, sometimes poetic presentation uh, of lyrics and then you know, just just stick to the hook and keep the keep the song concise and and, and one vibe. But I mean that that evolution took me quite a bit because I just feel like I was I was just kind of ADD with with writing for a while. I just wanted to, I just wanted to put everything in one song. <laughs> now now, how has this last year affected you personally? Uh, how what have you done in this last year? Maybe really honed in on is it the is it the writing? Is it like you said, d- diversification into other uh, d- to other venues as well? Um, <clears throat> well, I, I think like tw- you know, twenty twenty taught a lot of people to uh, pivot, <laughs> I guess, so to say. Um, but yeah, I, I spent the time traveling with the, the family, the wife, the baby and the dog (laughs) all across the country. (laughs) I think in like, in like six months, 
we we hit a we hit about probably thirty seven states in in about six months, and we did camping, uh, backpacking, and just sightseeing in a bunch of different cities. Now, in that, it just kind of taught me more. Honestly, if anything, it's just not to hold on to what's going on at the t- at the time. You know, mm-hmm. like it, it, don't get too caught up in what's going on in front of you because it it could all change. And man, it really changed. I, I would have never thought that I would have been doing that last year. Um, but, it, but, but it all worked out, you know, and it, it, it showed the, uh, true testament of just being able to pivot and adapt situations. Now the, the video for what love is, what, what were the challenges for that? And, uh, was this, uh, an added hair in there or was this done whenever you actually had that long hair? Um, yeah, that, that was done when I had long hair. So it was done like right before the pandemic. So then we uh, decided, you know, to just hold off on releasing it, you know, till everything kind of cleared up. And uh, that's, you know, that's, that's just the process of that. And, but yeah, it was, it was filmed in Miami. It was, it was, uh, it was, it was a lot of fun. It was filmed like over three days, just walking up and down the, the uh, South Beach strip right there. And uh, everybody's in a bathing suit, and I was in jeans and a jean jacket. (laughs) (laughs) Extra steamy in Miami, Um, but yeah, it was it was it was fun. But yeah, that someone else asked me, they're like, "Is that a wig? Did did you have a wig or extensions (laughs) in your hair?" I was like, "No, no, it's just it was filmed when I had long hair." about yeah. a year ago but yeah yeah i saw your instagram post and you 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 shared the picture of uh, of you with long hair and i was like okay i think it looks the same but you know the, hollywood and those guys they know how to do makeup pretty good so yeah yeah <laughs> no no hollywood guys just uh just my hair what does t- 2021 what does the summer the the end of summer i guess uh, look like for you and uh, and the rest of the year and then the goals moving into 2022 yeah, well, we've got another single that's going to drop sometime around August. We haven't got a specific date yet, but uh, and then we'll probably drop a third single probably before the end of the year for 2020 and uh, probably start looking at, at, at uh, putting a tour together for 2022. And um, I think that's about it. Yeah, just going to shoot more music videos and release singles that have that have been recorded and probably start getting into the studio for other new singles as well and drop a full length probably around the beginning of uh, 2022. That's cool. Now what, uh, what would you be able to pick up from the, the work on what love is like we said, uh, the evolution of the sound and, and working with a new producer, I believe also on this project, uh, what, what were you able to pick from this one that you move forward with your next projects? Uh, I mean, honestly, I, I love working uh, with blue productions uh, it's a, it's a buddy of mine who I actually grew up with in South Florida and he happens oh, wow. to live in Nashville. Now him and his buddy Lou, uh, Reed and Lou, they both produced it and we just all really, you know, went for something creative, but, but, you know, still in the pop realm and we all really vibed really well and everything just came together. It was great. It was fun. It was, it was easy. So, I mean, moving forward, I would, I would love to work more with those guys and, uh, you know, just, just be open to experimenting in the moment, but still keeping it relatively in the pop realm and, uh, having fun with it. But that's, I mean, that was, that was my first time really working on a bunch, you know, a bunch of music. I mean, I've done one-offs and singles with, with all different producers before, but first time doing 
you know, like an LP uh, of, of singles with the same producers. And I actually really enjoyed it and probably, well, because those guys are super talented, but also we all worked really well together. And you talked about Nashville. You brought up one of my favorite cities in in, in the world. Uh, the The music scene in Nashville has evolved too. What? How? How much different is the the scene in Nashville as opposed to what you what you've had before in in Miami, out in uh, L.A. as well? Uh, well, you know, well, L.A. has a lot of original music and a lot of different genres going on. Uh, but you know, the the people there can come across a little you know, clicky or, you know, whatever it is, everyone has their jokes about, you know, the, the typical like <laughs> LA vibe, but, uh, but that is not, that's, that's not in Nashville, you know, I'm sure you can find it every now and then, but I mean, the general vibe in Nashville is just, people are very supportive, very open, very friendly and collaboration is like a must in this city, which is what I love about it. And also in South Florida, there's there's a there's there's a decent amount of talent, but you know it's it, there's a lot of cover, lot of cover gigs and a lot of uh, you know just kind of drinking bars and stuff like that. Uh, the difference from that here is that there, you know there are just venue after venue <laughs> of all sizes. You got bigger venues, you've got small little dive venues, and it's and it's it's live, acoustic, electric, dance, rap, original music. And, you know, and just so much talent and it's such a central hub. So I feel like a lot of people come through here a lot, you know? Yeah. So you see people just, they're like, oh, you know, we're swinging, we're on our way from New York, you know, down to Atlanta or something. Let's stop in Nashville. And do, so you'll, you'll catch amazing acts in, in small venues and pay like 10 bucks to see them. I saw a guy that I was a fan of his for 12 years. And he actually, when, when I had moved here, he had moved here a few years earlier, uh, Jamie Liddell. I don't know yeah. if you know mm-hmm. Jamie Liddell. He's, a, he's actually English. Uh, but he performed in, a, in like a, a smaller venue, and I paid like five bucks to see him. And I was just like standing in the front row like freaking out. My wife took a bunch of pictures of my face because I look like such a nerd. Just like just standing out like with a huge smile on my face. Just, I mean... You know, that, that, that was amazing. And that was probably one of the first concerts I saw when I was here. So, you know, Nashville's just kind of a special city. I love it. That's cool. Now, now, Mike, I do want to make sure and let our listeners know uh, not only about what love is, where they can find uh, more info about that, but the upcoming singles, uh, social media tour dates, as those become available as well, where's, where's the best place to keep up with all that? Uh, any place you can stream music, you know, a lot of people use Apple music or Spotify, um, you know, any place you can stream music, you can find these singles at just under Mike Minio and, uh, also, uh, find me on Instagram at, uh, the official Mike Minio and, uh, Twitter at Mike Minio, you know, all, all the, all the social contents. <laughs> there you I'm go. There. Mike well, Mike, it has been great to have the chance to visit with you today, brother. I appreciate you taking some time out of the schedule and uh, hopefully we can catch up again real soon. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks again for joining us for this 107th episode in season two of Good Questions with Cameron Dole. If you ever have a comment, question, anything else you'd like to know, hit me up on the contact page at gqwithcam.com. You can also find me on Instagram 
Twitter, TikTok, and Facebook at GQ with Cam. If you'd like to help out in the funding for this podcast, you can visit the merch store where we've got hoodies, mugs, tumblers, shirts, stickers, and more, gqwithcam.com forward slash shop. You can also give a tip in a donation form at buymeacoffee.com forward slash gqwithcam. If you have a special guest idea, email me gqwithcam at gmail.com. Well, thanks again to our good friend Brandon Allen for coming up with our theme music. We're going to let him play us out and hope you guys have a great weekend. <laughs>